All right, so Revelation chapter 14. So John writes, and notice whenever he says, and then I looked, that's the beginning of another vision. He says, then I looked, and there was a lamb standing on Mount Zion with him, 144,000 who had his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. And they heard a sound from heaven like the roar of many waters uh, and like the sound of a loud thunderclap. The sound that I heard was also like the sound of harpists playing their harps. They were singing a new song in front of the throne and the four living creatures and the elders. No one was able to learn that song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women because they are virgins. They continually follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind as firstfruits for God and the lamb. And no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in the middle of the sky. He had the everlasting gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the sky, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed. He said, fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great who had made every nation drink from the wine of her adulterous desire. Another angel, a third one, followed them. He said with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink from the wine of God's wrath, which has been poured undiluted into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb, and the smoke of their torment is going to rise forever and ever. Those who worship the beast and his image and anyone who receives the mark of his name are going to have no rest day and night. Here, patient endurance is needed by the saints who hold on to the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. And they heard a voice from heaven say, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, because they will rest from their labors for their works follow them. Then I looked and there was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple and cried with a loud voice to the one sitting on the cloud, swing your sickle and begin reaping for the time to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is very ripe. And the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel who also had a sharp sickle came out of the temple, which is in heaven. And another angel who was in charge of the fire came from the altar and cried with a loud voice, the one who had the sharp sickle, swing your sharp sickle and harvest the grape clusters from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. Then the angel swung his sickle over the earth and he harvested the earth's vine and threw it into the great wine press of God's wrath. The wine press was trampled outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. All right, so uh, now we are in the fourth vision, and he is taking us to the scene around God's throne that we, were, that we saw earlier in chapters four and five. In chapter seven, we saw the 144,000. Back then, who did we say those 144,000 were? Yeah, the believers. Why 144,000? 
what does that number represent? Number 12, what does 12 represent? 12 tribes. 12 tribes and also in the New Testament, 12 apostles. So 12 times 12 is 144. So that's the number of God's people, Old and New Testament. And then 10 is the number of completeness. So 10 times 10 times 10. And so that equals 144,000. So it's not a literal number. It is a symbolic number of all of God's people of all places and all times. We would call that the Holy Christian Church. Uh, John says, and there I saw a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Who is the lamb? Jesus. Okay. So there... But when you look in our sanctuary, on the right-hand side of the sanctuary is the picture of the lamb standing on his throne. And there's the uh, spear mark in his, in his side. He's standing on Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? I know it's a church in Kenosha, but, well, not anymore, because now it's New Life. New Life Central, I think. But what is Mount Zion? <laughs> well, Mount Zion is the place where God dwelled among his people in the Old Testament. It's the place where the temple was located. So it's another name for, uh, for Jerusalem. So this Sunday... Uh, with Christ the King at this campus, and next Sunday, Christ the King. No, Saints Triumphant here. Uh, and then <laughs> next Sunday at the Caledonia campus, you'll sing as a closing hymn, Jerusalem the Golden. So and you think of, again, the picture of the stained glass window of the lamb on his throne. And then behind the lamb, back behind the river of life and the trees of life is the golden city of Jerusalem or Mount Zion, where God dwells with his people. And what's interesting, too, is in a climax of a book that we English speakers, uh, <clears throat> Westerners, where is the climax? Beginning, middle, or end? And, and that's just the way it is in our movies, in our books. But that's not the way in Eastern cultures. In Eastern cultures, like the Hebrews, the climax is in the middle. That's totally reverse our way of thinking but that's but the, that's the way they are so here this is uh hebrew thinking and the hebrew thinking is the climax is in the middle so chapter 14 is the middle of this book so for example like in hebrews in isaiah chapter 53 which talks about the savior and it's often quoted in the new testament in the middle of that chapter, uh, it, it is uh, it's in, in the middle of that book of Isaiah is that high point of the suffering servant. And so now we're in the middle of the book of Revelation. It's composed of seven sections that have seven parts each. And now we're in the fourth section and we're in the fourth part of that section. And so there isn't a greater climax than the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with his saints.
Uh, it says that they had that these saints had their had the name of the Lamb and the Father written on their foreheads. Remember last week when we read in Revelation chapter 13, what was the mark of the beast? No, 666. And we said that was something that marked them as belonging to the devil. We talked about throughout history, people have said, you know, that mark of the beast is this thing or that thing. But we said it's a spiritual thing because the mark on the on the foreheads of the saints is a spiritual thing. We don't all walk around where you can see a physical mark on us. So what is that spiritual mark that God has placed on us as Christians? Baptism, the sign of the cross. And that's why we, you know, we remind you to make the sign of the cross when the pastor makes a sign of the cross. In your own prayers, it's a reminder that God marked you as his own. He put his seal on you and no one can take it away now you can give it up but no one can take that away from you and then these saints in verse three they're singing a new song what is the new song even though it's an ancient message it's always new what is that don't think too hard That we're all safe. It's an old message, isn't it? Um, and yet it is new. It is new to us every morning. We need to hear this forgiveness. So, for example, if you have committed a sin, a grievous sin, and it separated you from your spouse or your children or maybe your, some other family members, and then You've heard for decades that you're forgiven, but now to come to the pastor and then, or to one of your family members that you have offended, and then to receive that absolution, that's a new message. And it's a new song. And this imagery is elsewhere. So here, go to Psalm 96. We'll go, we're going to read both Psalm 96 and Psalm 98. So think of that when we talk about singing a new song, that that new song is forgiveness. Uh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Tell about his glory among the nations, about his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and worthy of great praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are nothings. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Power and beauty are in the sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord families of peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and power. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring a gift and come into his courtyards. Bow down to the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Look away from his face, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the people with fairness. Then the heavens rejoice. Let the earth celebrate. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields be overjoyed and everything that is in them. And all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. 
For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And then turn the page to Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known. He has revealed his righteousness to the eyes of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Break out in joyful song. Make music. Make music to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of music, with trumpets and the sound of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and everything that fills it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's with fairness. So just want to read those because I keep stressing this, that everything in Revelation is found elsewhere in scripture. And so here you listen to the new song uh, sung by the saints to the Lamb in Mount Zion. And it's really the ancient song. It's the same song that was sung 1500 years, uh, 1000 years prior when that psalm was written. Uh, in the Old Testament hymnal, and it's sung new to us all the time. Are these sounds like prophecies? Well, some are. I mean, they're saying about, sounds like they're singing about Jesus. Are they singing about Jesus? Yeah. Yep. They're singing about the anointed one, the Messiah who's coming. Yep. Uh, and they're singing with those four living creatures and the elders. So this is makeup of everyone. Uh, what does it mean that no one was able to learn that song except the 144,000 who had been purchased? Why aren't other people able to learn this song? They're not believers. Yeah, they're not believers. We hear in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Only Christians can sing this song because only believers are going to be in heaven and singing this song. Uh, what does it mean that they've been purchased from the earth? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus paid the ransom price with his innocent suffering and death. All right, so these are the ones who are not defiled with women because they're virgins. They, there's no lie found in their mouths. Uh, verses four and five. What does that mean? That they're pure? Yeah, that they're pure. And that's simply all it means. It doesn't mean, oh, hey, we, we've had sex. That means we can't go to heaven. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's, we haven't defiled ourselves that we are blameless. Well, how could we be blameless? We're not blameless. By the lamb. By the lamb. Uh, David says, as far as, the east, as, far, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. So we're saints. We're holy people. That's kind of what we're celebrating this Sunday with Saints Triumphant, isn't it? That we, uh, and a special thing that we have 
in our congregation, I don't know if New Hope did it, but we've been doing it since I've been here at Epiphany, is that on Saints Triumphant Sunday, we thank God specifically for the saints from our congregation that he has transferred from the church militant, the church at war here on earth, to the church triumphant, the church at rest and triumph in heaven. So, uh, in, so we'll have the, uh, Pastor Lightning will say a, a paragraph explaining the prayer, and then we'll say, uh, we'll thank God for the saints that have come from our congregation, like Dwayne Krause and uh, uh, Sherman Duford, uh, Norm McInnes, and then you know, I wrote the prayer last week, and then God decided to call Bill Tempe, so I'd rewrite it. Uh, and all of those saints, we thank God, and there's a chime as we, there's a moment of silence, and we thank God specifically for the blameless ones, for the saints. Shoot, um, I, I'm just the uh, one, 144,000, where did they get that number? That is the number 12 for the Old Testament, the tribes, times the 12 of the New Testament, so that's a of the apostles. So that's the idea of uh, 12 times 12. And then 10 is the number for completeness. So you multiply 10 times 10 times 10 times 12 times 12, and you get 144,000. So that equals all of God's people. Or as we confess in uh, the third article of the Apostles' Creed, the Holy Christian Church. And it's not a literal 144,000. It's not a literal 144,000, exactly. And, and that's the problem when we start taking things literal in Revelation and then other things figurative or symbolic. So that's why when you realize that there's a mark on our heads, for example, in Revelation 14, and that's a symbolic, we understand that as baptism, then you can't go a few verses earlier in chapter 13 and then make the mark of the beast a literal mark on us in our skin or whatever it is. Okay, that does injustice to, to the way that you interpret scripture. And then uh, verse six begins the fifth vision. And so this is spanning the whole time of the New Testament era. We see three angels that are messengers of the word. So the first angel talks about flying in the middle of the sky. He had the everlasting gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth that every nation, tribe, people, tribe, language, and people. So that text of Revelation 14 verses 6 and 7 is read as the epistle lesson on Revelation, uh, on Reformation. And that's because that was the text that was used as the epistle lesson, the sermon text for Martin Luther's uh, funeral. So the pastor that had preached for it saw Luther as this angel. Not the literal angel, but a, a symbolic representation. How would Luther be this angel? Like the angel did. Exactly. 
So he is an example of a preacher sharing this everlasting gospel. Your pastors, your teachers, all of us are examples of this, this angel sharing an everlasting gospel. And then another angel follows, and he talks about fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. What is Babylon the Great? Rome. It is the Antichrist. We're going to look at that more fully in chapters 17 and 18. Then another angel follows. And he says that anyone worship the beast and receive that mark on his forehead, what's going to happen to him or to them? It says they will drink from the wine of God's wrath, which has been poured out undiluted. So, for example, you notice that, you know, the wine that we have for communion, it's strong wine, it's a port wine. Uh, one of the shut-ins, well, uh, one shut-in I visited on Wednesday, she says the same thing every time. Ooh, that was strong. And then uh, one of the other ones, we just started doing this, that it's really strong for her, so we dilute it. It's pretty, pretty much two-thirds water, one-third that wine. And that's the way you would often drink wine in, in John's day, in Jesus' day, because it was you couldn't drink the water. The water was unhealthy to drink. So you drank it with wine, and you diluted it. The wine would uh, take away the germs and so forth. So what does it mean, then, that it's undiluted? Full strength. So what does this mean when it comes to God's wrath? You're going to get it all. Not watering it down. Okay, it's kind of like, you know, when you're parenting, and then you're, you're, uh, you talk to yourself, you say, count to 10. Why do you count to 10 or walk to a room or send your child away for a while before you come back to discipline? Yeah, you dilute your wrath. You don't kill them. Yep. <laughs> you don't kill them. You, know, you are mad. All right. But you wait. Uh, you know, there's been times that with certain with certain kids and so forth, they need the undiluted wrath. They need me to, you know, they need to see their pastor who I joke around with and so forth. They need to see me not as a buddy, not as a friend but undiluted wrath. That's what's going to happen here with God. Undiluted wrath. Okay. And then the smoke of their torment in verse 11 is going to rise forever and ever. They, those who worship the beast and his image, anyone who receives a mark are going to have no rest day and night. And just notice, you know, what's the whole point of us going to heaven? Rest. rest. And there's no rest in hell. Uh, verse, uh, verse 12 is interesting. Uh, it says, here, patient endurance is needed by the saints. So in the notes from the EHV, it points out, in the Greek, the sentence is not calling for the saints to be patient. So literally, it says in the Greek, this is the patient endurance of the saints, meaning this is why the saints patiently endure. It's just stating a fact. 
And I think that's an important thing. Why? Why? What's the difference between uh, calling for you as saints to be patient as opposed to saying saints will be, will have patient endurance? One is definite, and the other one is could be or could not be. Yeah. Yeah. It's telling you, one is telling you to do something, and maybe you can do it, maybe you can't. The other one is, you're a saint. It's going to happen, and there's confidence in that. You're going to get through this. Verse 13, right? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on because they will rest from their labors, for their works follow them. So just before we had this class I had sent out to all of our members and I put it on Facebook of encouraging everyone to fill out uh, planning my Christian funeral. Uh, that is very helpful to me or your pastor, whoever, whomever that is for preaching for your funeral, that you've planned your funeral. So for example, I was visiting one of the shut-ins this week and I asked, I told her next time when I visit, I'll, I'll have this document. And uh, she kind of curled up her nose. Like, I don't want to do that because why? Why don't people want to write out their funeral plans? What's that? It means die. That means you're going to die. It's kind of icky, right? To think about that. Because she was telling me, well, I, you know, I was going to another church as a little girl, but then the epiphany started and that was closer. So I just walked there and then we joined there and she's been here. I think she's 92. So she's been here, you know, 80 plus years. I said, write that down. Her, none of her parents or none of her children or grandchildren live here. Nearby. I said, they don't know that story. I won't know. I won't remember that story. Or again, if another pastor does it, they don't know that story. You need to write that down so that that story can be told. Because the way I do funeral sermons is I share the life of Christ in the saint rather than in a memorial service where it's not Christian, it was just sharing the life of the Christ. It was sharing the life of the person. Okay. Uh, I'm very different. If the focus of a funeral, of a Christian funeral, is not on the saint, it's on Christ and the life of the saint. And I want to tell that story. But to help me do that, you need to write those kinds of things down. Uh, I'll, I'll say, I haven't written Bill Temke's funeral sermon yet, but uh, I do have you know, some ideas, and I'll mention this, is usually when I write a funeral sermon, I'll sit down with the family for an hour or so and gather stories. I didn't do that with this one. Uh, not because I knew Bill so well, but because he wrote his own story. He wrote a book. It's a 49-page diary that he wrote. Did he write it for Kyle? Kyle? Do you remember? Uh, he, he wrote it for the family. Okay. Because he mentioned Kyle by name toward the I end of it. Yeah, and it's funny. It's it's hilarious just because he goes off on tangents. Yeah, it, it goes off on tangents, but he writes it. Well, this is a tangent. I got to come back to this point, but it's it's really helpful. And you can just hear the faith of Bill all the way through. Not not quoting Bible passages, not giving public testimony to this thing or that thing. Just the faith of a of a faithful Christian coming through, and those kinds of things are helpful. Uh, and the Bible verse that I quoted at the end of the email to the members was uh, Psalm 116, verse 15, blessed in the eyes of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. But that's the same thing as this, isn't it? 
Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on because they will rest from their labors for their works follow them. All right, anything on those parts before we get to the harvest? All right, so now this is the sixth vision. And there is one that is seated on a cloud who was like a son of man. He has a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Who is the son of man? Jesus, okay. Uh, this is very similar to the vision that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 12. And that's what I'm preaching on this Sunday for Christ the King at the Caledonia campus. And then the following Sunday here at Racine is that Jesus, uh, Daniel says in, in chapter 12 that he has a vision of four beasts from the earth or out of the sea. And those all represent different kingdoms. You know, they, they represent Babylon, the Medo-Persian, the Greek and the Roman empires. And then he sees a vision of one who is like a son of man. Well, that's obviously Jesus refers to himself over 70 times in the gospels as the son of man, emphasizing that though he is God's son, he is also Mary's son. That from his incarnation, the word took on human flesh so that the son of man could be laid in a manger then laid on a cross, and then laid in the tomb. And now the Son of Man is ascended to heaven on his throne. And then he has a sickle. And then later on, we see another angel coming with a sickle. So Jesus is harvesting one group of people, and the angel is harvesting another group. Who is Jesus harvesting? Believers. And then the angel is the unbelievers. That's very similar to, again, the, the painting that we have by the pulpit of Jesus sitting on his throne and the one angel with the scroll reading off the names. And you have the two saints there. On the other side is the demon leading the two unbelievers to hell. And so all of that imagery is really saying the same kind of thing. Verse 18, this is two, uh, this is spoken of uh, the angels, swing your sharp sickle and harvest the grape clusters from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. Then the angel swung the sickle over the earth and he harvested the earth's vine and threw it into the great wine press of God's wrath. The wine press was trampled outside the city. And the blood flowed from the wine press as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. So there, when I was thinking of uh, you know, trampling the grapes, you know, I was thinking of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, right? Uh, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. And then it goes on for 1,600 stadia. So a stadia is about 606 feet. That's not really that important to us. But so the distance would be 180 miles. But again, that's not really that important. What's important is the 1,600. So there you would take four times four times 10 times 10. 
So it is the complete judgment. It is the entire world. So it's not measuring out 108 square miles. It's measuring out, this is the entire earth that is going to be harvested. And, and then this is symbolizing the complete judgment on the unbelieving world. So who figures out I would have no idea what to take. Mm -hmm. I would take 6.6, whatever. Yep. Who, who figures out what you're supposed to multiply to get that number? Professor Brug. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <That though>, <laughs> <laughs> but it's his notes in here. Uh, no, I think it's just knowing those symbolic numbers and, and knowing that four is the number of the earth, three is the number of God, 10 is the number of completeness, uh, seven is another number for God. So six is, uh, and then six is like seven. So that's why six, six, six is trying to be seven, but it can't be. And six is then the number of the devil. You know when that was determined? No, I think it's well, obviously with Revelation, and then you just kind of figure these things out over time. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, I've studied this often enough that I don't know where and when I've learned it, but it's, uh, and I, I've never heard anyone saying anything differently, especially because I only read Lutheran commentators, but they all agree on the symbolism of this. Yeah. That I don't know because, like I said, I'm reading the Lutheran commentators. I yeah, I wouldn't be able to know where it all came from. Uh, verse verse fourteen. It says that someone told the angel to reap. Who's the one telling Jesus to reap? God, God the Father. Again, so this is this is good for that my sermon on Christ the King, whether you're here this Sunday or next Sunday. It is the Son of Man is standing beside the throne of the Ancient of Days. And they're all saying the sermon, he's ancient, that he's always, he always has been, he always will be. And while these beasts come and go, while these empires rise and fall. God, the father of the ancient of days has always been there. And then in Daniel's vision, the ancient of days gives all power, dominion, and authority over to his son. And that's what it says in Matthew 13, uh, also too, where Jesus is a reaper, that Jesus has ascended into heaven, and now he has that authority as he sits at the right hand of God, the father almighty. Again, we say that in the second article of the creed. All right, let's go on to chapter 15. Then I saw another great and remarkable sign in heaven, seven angels with seven plagues, the last plagues, because in them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. I also saw those who had won the victory over the beast and his image and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass. They held the harps of God, and they were singing the song of Moses, God's servant, and the song of the Lamb. They said, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. 
Who will not fear you, Lord, and who will not praise your name? You alone are holy. All the nations will come and bow down before you because your righteous verdict has been revealed. After these things I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of the testimony was opened in heaven. The seven angels who hold the seven plagues came out of the sanctuary. They were clothed with bright, with clean bright linen, and they wore gold sashes around their chests. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels the seven gold bowls full of wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one was able to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. All right. So now the seventh vision ushers in the vision of the seven bowls of God's wrath. So this is going to be the introduction in chapter 15 of this vision. So here again, John says, I saw or I looked. And so this is another vision. Every time you see, see those words, is another vision. So this seventh vision is going to complete the series, uh, announcing the seven bowls of wrath, which are God's final judgments on the earth. And with the seven seals, it was bad enough. And then now the seven bowls of wrath are even more intensified than the seven seals. And it says in verse three that Moses sang and uh, that they're singing the song of Moses. So here it says, we've got some time. Why don't you open to uh, Exodus chapter 15. So right after the plagues and then the exodus from Egypt, now you've got the parting of the Red Sea and the Israelites are standing on dry ground. The Pharaoh and his army are drowned in the depths of the sea. And as the waters have crashed down on, the, on Pharaoh and his horses and his men, and maybe you've got their, their dead corpses uh, washing up on the shore. Now Moses sings the song. So Exodus 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He has cast Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. His elite officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters covered them. They sank down to the depths like a stone. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand has shattered the enemy. In your great majesty, you overthrew those who opposed you. You sent out your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. At the blast from your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a dam. The deep waters became solid in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the plunder, I will do whatever I want with them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, awesome in praise, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your mercy, you will lead the people that you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them. 
to your holy pasture land. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away in despair. Terror and dread will fall upon them by the great power of your arm. They will be as still as stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people whom you have purchased pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain that belongs to you, the place, O Lord, that you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When the Pharaoh's horses, along with his chariots and charioteers, went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back on them, but the Israelites walked on dry land in the middle of the sea. Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a hand drum, and all the women followed her with drums dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. So when it's talking in, Revel we can go back to Revelation 15. So it talks about singing the song of Moses. That's what they're singing. So what is the song of Moses about? Yeah. God saving the people of Israel by doing what? Yeah, wiping out the enemy. You know, saving them, that's one part, but saving them by also wiping out the enemy. So now, why sing the song of Moses here in chapter 15, right after chapter 14? How so? It's the same thing. There you go. So that's exactly the same thing. That's why the song of Moses. And as Christians, we shouldn't feel bad that we're singing about, you know, and thanking God and rejoicing that our enemies have been wiped out. That's what we want. And God is demonstrating his justice that on the last day, even though we may not receive vindication now, then we will. God will wipe out our enemies and we will thank him and rejoice over it. What does it mean that they're standing on a glass sea? Okay, it is a vision of heaven, but why a glassy sea? It's peaceful. Yeah, it's peaceful. It's calm. Think of how the Israelites, the Israelites are not seafaring people. And the sea is always dangerous to them. And you can think of even the Sea of Galilee, which is really small. And yet how the storms would come up on them and terrify fishermen, you know, experienced fishermen like Peter and Andrew, James and John, as well as the other disciples. And now it's, it's perfectly calm. And that's the way heaven is. All right. And then it talks about the sanctuary. He says, and then I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of the testimony was opened in heaven. What is the tent of testimony? Yeah, so that's the tabernacle. So that's the tent that God had Moses set up while the Israelites were traveling 
around for the 40 years in the desert. And then when they got into the promised land, all the way up until uh, Solomon built the permanent structure of the temple, they had that, that tabernacle. Now, when they moved into the promised land, they had the temple or the tabernacle in one place, but still it was in a tent. And the, the tent of testimony, the tabernacle, was a symbol of the special sign of God's presence. But the true tabernacle, the true temple of God, is in heaven. And now the closing of the sanctuary may represent the unapproachable glory of God. But what is it saying that... Uh, That no one, if you turn the page, it says in verse 8, it's filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. But we've also seen smoke earlier. And smoke is also the prayer of God's saints, the incense. But what does it mean then that no one was able to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed? Why is no one able to enter the sanctuary? God is there. God is there. And it's too late. Once judgment day comes, it's done. Even though the, the peoples of the earth will cry out, it won't matter. They had their chance. God gave them every opportunity, and now the sanctuary is closed. Right now, it's open, but at one, but on that last day, it will be closed, and it's too late to enter the tabernacle. Those who have despised God's word become hardened against it, and then hardened by God. And then the last thing then is that these seven plagues are God's wrath. It marks the end of the world, and God's wrath is completed. But it's then that the believers will enter the sanctuary of God's heaven with their glorified bodies. All right. Anything else that you guys want to bring up? So a good time for us to study chapters 14 and 15 as we close up the season of end times uh, as we focus on Christ's second coming at any time that he can come and then he will be bringing his judgment. You know, thankfully he brings, he, he rescues people from the judgment. And that's one of the things we need to remember with St. Strampin. All those people that we thank God for, thank him that he's spared them from this earth, from the church at war, the church militant, transferring them to the church triumphant. And then the last Sunday of the church year of Christ the King, that Christ is coming. He is that son of man who comes. But when he comes, he's bringing his sickle along with the angel with his sickle. And they will be harvesting both believers and unbelievers. You say, and this is in another passage where God hardens their hearts. Mm -hmm. They don't get in or do it after there's no hope. Yeah, we don't know when God hardens people's hearts. But that's where he, Jesus says in the Gospels, don't cast your pearls before swine. Uh, and what he's saying there is you share the gospel, but eventually when people say, I don't want it anymore, 
then take the gospel elsewhere. They have heart in their hearts, but somewhere along the line, God will follow up and then he may harden their, their hearts. We don't know when that is, but God says that that can happen. And we know of the one case where that happened with, uh, with Pharaoh. I think we could say with King Saul too. It doesn't really say that he, uh, that God hardened his heart, but we can see from, uh, from the results that it seemed like he hardened his heart too. To me, it just seems that, um, well, God knows the future, mm -hmm. but he knows no matter what, who approaches these people, how many times they're approached, they're going to reject it. So they just kind of like, okay, forget it. Write them off because no matter what happens or what, what you know, who comes and approaches you, you're never going to change. Yeah. And so I interpret that. Yep, exactly. And then, and then that's a good reminder for us. So we want to share the gospel. And, but eventually, if people that we want to share the gospel with don't want it, as much as we want them to have it, and as much as uh, we want them in heaven with us, it may come a time that we have to say, fine, cut our losses and then go and share the gospel with someone else and have our, uh, have our time and energy spent elsewhere. But there's no cut and dry thing. Oh, I shared two times with this person. He, he said no both times, now I'm gonna move on. Yeah, because there's examples too where he strikes, uh, if people get afflictions or terrible things happen, like in Job, you know, mm -hmm. one bad thing after another happens to somebody, they still don't change their mind. It's like, yeah, there's no, no matter what happens, they're not going to change their mind. Yeah. No matter how many bad things happen to you, you know, they might even make them resent God more. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else? I was going to say, you know, you talk about indoctrination mm -hmm. and you're just thinking, when somebody's so indoctrinated, even if they hear the truth and see the truth, they will never change. Right. Yeah, and that's and that's why uh, we really want to be sharing that gospel early on with our children. Indoctrin in, in you know, in our culture that, that word indoctrinate has become a bad thing. But we need to understand that's our role as parents and grandparents, as pastors and people and, and with our school is we are purposefully indoctrinating our kids. Uh, and, uh, you know, so we've had, you know, with, with our school, you know, people have asked this question all the time. It's a good question. And they say, well, I know that with school choice, parents can have their children opt out of our religion classes. And I said, in both Paul Patterson as our principal and I as a pastor, we've said that this, uh, we've talked to parents about that. And a couple of years ago, we had two kids in my eighth grade catechism class that wanted to opt out. And the only reason they wanted to opt out was because they know that I'm a lot harder than some of the other pastors in the, with the curriculum. And both Paul and I agreed and we sent emails to the parents and I told the parents, the same thing I'm teaching in eighth grade is the exact same thing your kids have gone through because these kids were ones, they weren't brand new in eighth grade. They were ones that had gone through our system. They weren't members. 
So it's the same thing they were taught in Christ-like through all the years. Now it's just a different focus. And, and then we also said, and if, uh, well, we also said, if they're not in my class, they don't get a pass, they don't get a study hall. They, we can make them study whatever they want. We want, not whatever they want, whatever we want. And so Paul happened to be taking a class on the constitution through Hillsdale College. And uh, we said, well, you can go through that class with Mr. Patterson which that's way harder than my stuff. And, but here's a, here's the main point is what we've also said is if you don't, oh, our religion, our Christianity is throughout our curriculum. You can't just opt out of one class. It's going to be throughout the whole day. And if you don't want what we're offering, you have school choice. You can take that voucher to another school where it doesn't matter. You know, we lay it on the line. We want you here, but if you don't want to be here to, to receive what we want, then go elsewhere. You know, we're very, very um, upfront with that. And we've never had a child opt out. Okay, because we, we tell them upfront, if you don't want this, then go elsewhere. So, and, and, but I just bring that story up because we want to be upfront and we want to be bold, but if people don't want what we have to offer, then they can go elsewhere. All right. So then for next week, we'll pick it up as we look at these first five bowls and then the seventh bowl and then the, the vision of the great prostitute. But thankfully, in chapter 17, Jesus gives us a, uh, an explanation of who and what this prostitute is. But notice, like I said before, the bowls are, are stronger than the seals. So the same thing we saw earlier with the seals, but the seals, uh, that was including both saints and unbelievers. Now the bowls of wrath are really just for the unbelievers. So it's everything poured out, undiluted. All right, very good.